if you're only focused on your own success, you're going to get bored. Mm. Cause like there's just a very limiting number of money, of trips, of cars. It gets pretty flatline logarithmically. Mm. But when you shift your focus, at least for me to like, how many people can I impact? Because like the bigger the number it gets, actually, the more exciting it is. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. Okay, you want my confession now? Yeah, we're ready. So you said the train has like noise or whatever. The noise in this room from the air conditioning is was, even worse. So I turned it off. So at some point we're gonna we're gonna get hot. we're gonna we're gonna take our shirts off. Got, this is gonna be a shirtless episode. Oh, uh, this is a not safe for work <laughs> podcast, but it's gonna be great. <laughs> oh man, well, dude, I'm super pumped to be doing this. Thank you for having me on an actual nice day in Atlanta. It's like perfect. It's beautiful. Outside. This is what May and April suspect. Is this what it's, it's like here? It's like this until July. And then July is starts to get exceptionally hot after 4th of July. I remember I was here visiting Sean Henry yeah. and he was in Buckhead or something. Yeah. And anyway, I ran from my hotel, which was downtown. It was literally a hundred degrees out and I went for a run and I was miserable. Yes, it is brutal in the summer. 100% humidity. You can't run after maybe 8 a.m. It was like, I'm not kidding you, 100 degrees. Yeah. I, I, yes. So, Welcome to Atlanta. I was going through our email thread because I did not want any stone unturned, okay, in my prep. And I noticed that there's another Langley yeah. on the thread. Yeah. And I was like, that's weird. Like, really random coincidence. Mm-hmm. And then I do some digging and I'm like, oh my God, that's his mom. Yep. This is a three and a half billion dollar company. Yeah. And your mom is your executive assistant. That's correct. What? Are, you so, Are you serious? So uh, <laughs> it's really funny you bring this up because I was actually texting with David George, uh, you know, at DG, yeah, yeah. and he was like, dude, is your mom actually your yay? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, that's wild. Like, you might be the only person I've ever met. That's the case. And I was like, well, look, it's actually, it's a huge life hack because this is a person that's clearly known me my entire life. There's not a person that probably knows me better. And if you look at the role of a high growth CEO, yep. my biggest risk to success is my personal life causing an outsized amount of stress, right? I've got two young kids. I have a wife who works. I need to be able to show up to work with a clear head. Mm -hmm. I now have redundancy in my personal life. If things get crazy, I'm traveling, my wife's traveling, my nanny or someone goes to school, I have a person who I can trust with my kids, who's on payroll, who, yes, she has a full-time job at Flock, but at the end of the day, she exists to support me in being successful. And so literally like, I'm a, it's almost on a bi-weekly, monthly basis where she has to just jump in and help take care of the kids for a couple hours. And that to me is like the smartest thing 
someone could do. If you're in that life situation, I am like DG is in where you've got young kids and you want your kids to be taken care of and you don't want that stress coming into work. When I saw it, I was like, I would love to do this. As I thought about it practically, I was like, I can be a pain in the ass sometimes. The worst of me is when things get chaotic, both personally and professionally. You have a bad day at work and you have a bad day at home and things are happening with the kids and all these things, right? You didn't get your workout in in the morning. Like you're just like not the best version of you. Yeah. And who does that usually come out on? It's usually your right-hand woman or man, yeah. right? In this case, it's your mom. This is a very hard job. Yeah. How do you deal with that? So I think it's helpful that also context-wise, this is not her first EA role. Yeah. So she had been an EA for... 10 years before this. It's like she's walking into the situation very comfortable with the job. Yeah. And I guess this is just a reflection of our relationship that it's very easy for me to give her critical feedback in terms of like work performance. Now, like she's great at her job, so it's not really a problem, but yeah, there's obviously some uniquity. It's probably no different than working with a spouse or co-founding a company with a spouse. Like 99% of the time, it's going to be great. And that 1%, like you just got to be ready to deal with if things aren't going perfect. Did she suggest it or did you suggest it? That's a great question. So we want to rewind 20 years ago. No, 25 years ago. I was like 11 or 12 and I got really into computers. And... I built this like outsourced MIS company. I say company, it was just me, but she was my first employee and she would drive me because I couldn't drive. I wasn't 15. And so we had always joked <laughs> once I started flock that she should come work at flock. Like we could re like, cause this could be the last place she works. She could retire here and it would be this perfect professional narrative or arc of the first person I ever hired was my mom and her last job is working for me again. It was this joke, right? And then when Flock got to a point to where I would deem us low risk or lower risk, seed stage, series A, like you're always 12 to 18 months from going out of business. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to put my mom in that situation. We didn't have health insurance as mm -hmm. a company really. And as soon as we raised our, I think it was our series C, and I was like, mom, we're a pretty real business now. We've got hundreds of employees. We've got three or four years of runway. We have great insurance. Like you should just come do it. And she was like, I'm in. And I'm sorry, can I keep asking about this? This, this is, is great. This is truly I, I think this is actually like one of, I, I strongly recommend to every like growth stage CEO that has a young family, like you need to overinvest in your personal life because it is the, it is like the single biggest, for me at least, the biggest stressor I have is not at work. It's like my kids and it's my family. Your mom is still your mom in your personal life. Like she could still step in when you and your wife are out for work trips or whatever, yeah. whether or not she's the EA. But I guess the point is, if she's working somewhere else, can, oh, she, I see what you're saying. can she jump in at 9 a.m. because my nanny calls in sick? Yeah. Like, no. And so I've got friends. As an example, I think everyone on my executive team has kids, varying age. When their kids are sick, they're out of pocket. Either them or their spouses, in a lot of cases, is a dual income household. Like, one of them is taking a half day. And like now, for my wife and I, we don't have to. We have a backup. And so, if, look, if we were exceptionally wealthy, then we could just have three nannies or two nannies. Yeah. Like that's not the reality. How do you create a separation between like church and state? There do is none. None. So like in the office, do you call her mom? No, but oddly I don't call her mom at home either, which is like a whole separate 
okay. conversation. But so you call her by her first name. Yeah. And you do that at home anyway. Yeah. Okay. Like my wife does as well. Like she just goes by her name. Okay. And it's not a secret in the office. No, not at all. Everybody knows. Everyone knows. And it's going to stay this way. You're going to keep doing this. 100%. You love like it. Without a, oh, you, like you think it is, it's the world's best kept secret that you figured out. I, I think like <laughs> I am, I feel bad for everyone who's in a similar situation to me and doesn't have this benefit. And Part of it is that the circumstances just had to work out. She has to be highly competent in the job. Yep. The company had to work because you wouldn't want to put all of the family eggs in this basket. Yep. The company has to be based where you were raised, where she lives. <laughs> she has to be like geographically local. Yeah. Like all of those things could ha- have yeah. to happen. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing is like, there's also like a, a strong, I think one of the things that's unique about my mom is her joy in life is supporting people. Yeah. Like very, very low ego, very focused on how she enables other people to be successful. Like when you ask her her greatest accomplishment in life, it's her two sons. You and one other. And my brother, yeah. Is your brother like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> what? Well, uh, definitely jealous because I monopolize <laughs> right. You've taken free time. Literally all of mom's time. Yes, all of grandmom's time. But no, yeah, that's really important, right? She views her success as my success and my brother's for that matter. And that's like very different, right? She wasn't a software engineer or, you know, like a CMO or something like that, right? She's been an EA. She likes serving people. It's incredible. It's exceptionally rare and exceptionally awesome. So we're going to dinner with, wow, now that I think about it, two other past guests of the show tonight, Joe from Loom, Sean from Stored. Sean's an Atlanta boy, like I said, through and through. His family's here. Joe, I think his wife's family is from here maybe or Nearby, yeah, Nashville, I think. Next thing you know, you're going to give him the sales pitch tonight and and I'm going to be coordinating with them in the exact same way that I... I I strongly recommend it. (laughs) Still, I mean, like I said, I was texting with DG and he was like, this is wild. It makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. It's fairly unique. Yeah, but it makes sense. Okay, I had to clear yeah, that Yeah, no, up. I love it. I, and it's funny because, you know, people are often just like, huh, that's interesting. And then you walk through the like logical nature of it and you're like, assuming you can deal with that edge case of what if performance is low, but like I have- Okay, I have one more question that okay, I thought yeah. of. So if someone is rude to her, if someone Ooh, is curt or if they do something- where they treat her poorly. Or another nightmare example is they reschedule five times and you don't know about it because it's on your calendar somewhere else. But does that ever come back to you? I don't think any more than what a normal EA relationship would be like. Just like other great EAs, she gives me the kind of like dossier before a day. Here's the 17 people you're talking to and why you should talk to them. But no, I think the nice thing is she just wants me and Flock to be successful. And she's just zeroed in on like, how do we make that happen? Yeah. And so people, that's like everyone's job at Flock, yeah. yours included, mine included. Yeah. So luckily, no, that hasn't like happened. Incredible. Yeah. Well, I guess we've already started, but I'm going to formally start. Okay. Welcome. I guess technically you're welcoming me or am I welcoming yeah, you? Yeah, it's my office, but you're welcome. Welcome to Atlanta and thank, welcome to Flock thank HQ. Thank you. We're in uh, sales. What is it? Sales We're loft. We're in our sales loft. Yeah. We're in the sales loft, which is also doubles as the board meeting. Yep. Loft. Okay. Uh, well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be doing this. Uh, I get all these things going the same way. I'll read your background back okay. to you. Tell me if I screw up and then we'll go from there. I'm probably going to screw up, but if I don't, that'd be awesome. You got your BS in electrical engineering from Georgia Tech, graduated with honors and blah, blah, blah. You're super smart. We get it. And then you went to uh, 
Firethorn. Is that right? Yep. You were the fifth employee there. And it was uh, acquired by Qualcomm for $210 million a couple years into your shift yeah. at this company. Pretty good break. Then you go to a company called Clutch. You started a company yep. called Clutch. You're part of the founding tech team there. I intuited that it went under or it didn't really work or you left like within a year. Is that also right? So missed a company Okay. in between. Okay, good. So you went experienced then Clutch? Yes. So sold experience to Cox Enterprises, mm-hmm. incubated Clutch during my golden handcuff periods. And then as soon as I was able to leave Cox, I left. Interesting. And so you went from Firethorn yep. as the fifth employee, good exit for $210 million. Then you vested for four years there, Yeah. right? I'm just doing the math here, and no one's accused me of being good at math. And then you started Experience. Yep. It's like company number two, okay? And you then sold that for $200 million again? Yeah, 250 yeah. 250 And then you vested for how long there? A year. Is that when your handcuffs came off? Yeah. How old were you at that point? So funny enough, I've had a very good luck, very serendipitous luck in terms of meeting people. So we were talking earlier about this company that I was running. I say company, it's not fair. It's professional services that I was doing where I was managing people's networks and internet connections back in 2000, 2001. So people were like just getting the internet. People were ecstatic to have like printers and laptops and stuff. And so I was going to people's houses and, you know, I'm 13, 14 years old charging $50, $100 an hour to do this. I'm like making great money. Mm -hmm. And I meet this guy, my junior or senior year of high school, because I was still in this business, this guy named Chip Rackley, exceptional entrepreneur, great guy as well. And he was like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was like, I don't know. I love technology. I love computers. He's like, yeah, you seem to be really good at it, but don't do professional services. There's no scale. You really need to get into software. And I was like, oh, you know, I can build websites. I can do that kind of stuff. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like I start companies. And I didn't know that was a thing you could do. Mm -hmm. This is in Atlanta. This is in Atlanta. Yep. I had no idea that people started companies. I mean, I guess logically you could come to that conclusion, but to me, we have Coca-Cola, we have Home Depot, we have UPS. Like We have these legacy companies in Atlanta. I just assumed that everyone went and worked for someone else. And he was like, no, 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 no. You really should be an entrepreneur. And so I was 18, about to start Georgia Tech that fall. And he was like, you should come work. I took a company public. That went really well. I'm starting another one. It's called Firethorn. We're going to do mobile banking. This is like 2004, 2005. So this Motorola Razor was the it phone. And we were like, we're going to put P2P payments, NFC, everything you do today, Mm -hmm. Apple Pay, Venmo, et cetera, on a Motorola Razor. So I was the third or fourth, fifth employee. And I was 18 years old and I had no idea what I was doing. And were you still, did you drop out? No, I wound up going through school and working full-time at the startup. Both of them. Yeah, and met my wife, freshman orientation. I didn't really do school. I did fine in school, but it was like my focus was 1A was Firethorn, 1B was my wife, 1C was like everything else that normal, normal people do in college. And so we sold the company, I think my junior or sophomore you were year. 20. You were 20. Yeah, even, you weren't even and I was drinking. like... You, weren't even, you couldn't even go to a bar to celebrate. No, 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 I wasn't legal drinking. <laughs> so like we did a party in Vegas and like, I went and I couldn't drink. And you were loaded all of a sudden. I did really well. Especially, loaded especially for... Put an asterisk on being in Atlanta, being 20 years old. Right. Coming from a place where both of my parents worked full-time, my mom worked two jobs to put us through private high school, to then all of a sudden have like significant amount of wealth was like 
Why doesn't everyone start companies? This seems so obvious. Yeah. Now, clearly hindsight is that it's actually much harder than I thought it was to to be successful. So it was a glimpse, but what was unique about Trip was that he, you know, everyone has a, is it product? Is it market? Is it team? Like that defines the success of a company. And he is a hard believer. Like it's team, 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 team. Yeah. And his co-founding team built the prior company together, built Firethorn together. And he was yeah. like, you should be on the team. Like, let's go build a company together. And that was experience. Yeah. And I kind of uh, stole that from him in terms of a hardcore belief that I don't think markets or products matter. I think great teams find good markets. They build good products. So how long after Firethorn? So you there for, I think I was there for Qualcomm, I was at Qualcomm for probably four years. So call it 23, 24 years old. Yeah. And then you and went started to, experience and then you started experience. And then Sold three that years at, later? Sold that, yeah, as a 27, 28. Three yeah. years? Yeah. For another 200. Yeah. And you're feeling on top of the world. I would actually flip that on its head. There was a moment of, I'm unstoppable, I'm on the top of the world. And then a very quick, like, I'm 28, and the things that I've identified as career goals I've accomplished, Yeah. what do I do now? Like a quarter-life crisis, I guess, of like, it was a very strange period of life where I had no idea what to do next. The way that I've described it, and I struggle with this like today, I was very lucky to have my midlife crisis at a very young age. Yeah, I hit success early. Like My success and your success are very different things, but I was supposed to have this great job and this great money, and that would afford me all the things that I was supposed to have in my life. Right. And usually... You know, my parents got their PhD and didn't start making money till they were 37, you yeah. know? So like the car in the house didn't come till 45 or later. That's usually when you have your midlife crisis. Yeah. That's why you have it then. All of a you, sudden, you, all the things that you were told were supposed to be awesome, you realize they're not actually that fulfilling yeah. anymore. I did the fast car and all these things and I was like so hollow inside. Anyway, it sounds like you experienced something similar. Yeah, I mean, we had the house. I had a beautiful wife, a beautiful house. So I left Cox. I knew I didn't want to work at a big company. Like that was very clear. And when we sold the company, we had negotiated. Garrett's not going to even stay with experience. He really should just go work on building new ideas for Cox Enterprises. It's an exceptional company, like great stewards of a family business. And so I incubated a few ideas for them. It was a lot of fun, but I was like, I'm an entrepreneur. Like, I need to go build companies. And so left there with no plans, no idea what to do next and mm-hmm. spent you know, the better half of six or nine months trying to figure out like what to do with myself, mm-hmm. which is a weird place to be to your point at 20, you know, 28, 29, whatever, how old I was. Was there ever a deliberation like, honey, should we go travel the world? Was there ever a moment in your mind where you were like, I think I want to step away from grinding on startups? Oh, yeah. I mean, I interviewed at big companies. I was like, maybe I should be like a big company guy. (laughs) I thought about never working again. You did. And I was like, maybe I'll just hang out. Yeah. And so I played a lot of golf. Yeah. I played like 18 to 27 holes a day. Yeah. For a few months. (laughs) And like, that was fine. But everyone I was playing golf with was like in their late 60s. And I was like, this is not. Yeah. We have nothing in common with these people. Yeah. And eventually my uncle, he, he was also in technology and he called me and was like, you just need to go do something not dopey. He's like, you've done the success thing. So like remove the money, figure out what's actually going to make you happy. And the opportunity is to build a non dopey company. And I loved his expression of dopiness because I use it in recruiting now. 
because we recruit a lot from B2B companies selling software to other B2B technology companies. Mm -hmm. That's super dopey. Mm -hmm. You help other companies make money. Congrats. Mm -hmm. Good for you. Mm -hmm. like, you're not actually making the world a better place. It's like, like the Steve Jobs, like selling sugar water, basically. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go build another company, but I'm going to make sure it's not dopey. Like I only want to build a company that like truly, truly is making the world better and not the like second tertiary degree betterness, but like direct impact on people's lives on day zero. And so every idea we threw against the wall came back to cannot be dopey. Mm -hmm. Like cannot be about money, has to be about something bigger. And I hope we do make money in the process, but got to do that. I've had a guy named Mark Anderson on the show. He was formerly the president of Palo Alto Networks and now the CEO of a company called Alteryx. Yeah. Obviously made all the money that you could ever make, basically. And he was reflecting on something very similar. And he was like, you know, Jubin, I always thought I could make a lot of money and my wife and I could go down to Palm Springs and buy a place and be on the country club that we love and just play golf every day. And it'd be me and my buddies and we could just play golf. And he's like, I did that. That was my life yeah. dream. And I did that. And then he's like, three or four months later, like I got a beer belly. There was only so much that I could just golf with my friends. Like I missed the pain in some way was the way that he kind of described it. It gave me pause because I've always thought about life like that too. I need to do this to do this so that when I retire, I can have a good life. Yeah. And I kind of have that relationship to everything that I end up doing in my life. I want to do this so I can get this next job. So I can go on this trip. And then every time I'm just like, looking around the corner, kind of missing exactly what's happening pretty much right in front of me. Yeah. Well, I think there's also an element of if you're only focused on your own success, you're going to get bored. Because mm. like, there's just a very limiting number of money, of trips, of cars. It gets pretty flatlined logarithmically. Mm. But when you shift your focus, at least for me, to like, how many people can I impact? Because like the bigger the number it gets, actually, the more exciting it is. So I think about like 500 people that work at Flock. And I'm like, what if I can help them make generational wealth? What if for the hundreds of millions of people that are impacted by the products we build, what if they have a safer house? What if there's less bias in the world? Like that, to me, that number has no ceiling. Because eventually it's like, okay, we solve crime in America. How do we solve crime in, in the world? So I don't know, that was like a shift for me. And I think that's the, to your point on the midlife crisis. It was like, all right, I got to stop focusing on myself. Like I need to focus on other people. What do you mean flatline logarithmically? So think about this. You buy your first car. You're like, oh my gosh, I have a car. So you buy a second car. It's like, oh wow, now I have a car that I drive every day and I have my like fancy car for the weekends. That third car, that fourth car, the incremental pleasure is diminishing. So when you get to the 10th car, you forget how many cars you even own. And I think the difference is that when you focus your energies on other people, actually every incremental one gets just as valuable. Like when I think about, like I was talking to one of our technicians in LA and look for our software developers, for a lot of our team, they make really good money. They could probably go make more money or other money other places. But like for a lot of our employees, this is the best job they've ever had. They get paid well, they have equity in a company. Comcast isn't giving their technicians equity. They're not getting RSUs, right? They get paid whatever an hour, poor benefits. We treat everyone at Flock the same. And like, man, every technician we add is like that much cooler because there is a person who we are helping elevate into a different socioeconomic status. So to me, every person we hire is like that much more exciting versus when it's material assets you buy for yourself. It's just like, 
you reach a point to where it just none of it matters anymore. I couldn't agree more. So you started this company in March or April of 2017. I want to frame it up with like where it is today and then let's kind of rewind. And I'd love to just have you talk about what the hell Flock does and the mission and that kind yeah. of thing. It has raised a total of $380 million. The last round was done fairly recently at $3.5 billion, $150 million round. Y Combinator, you went through Y Combinator, right? Yeah, we did. A16, Bedrock, Tiger, Spark, Matrix, Meritech, Founders Fund. It's an incredible story. And I'll tell you, I was uniquely excited about this conversation because it's just so damn cool what you do. It's so cool. It like really resonates with me. The way that I've heard you describe it or I've seen it be described is that Flock is building the first public safety operating system to help law enforcement make communities safer. What does that mean? So very eloquently said and spot on. Yeah. The thing for me is that I believe everyone has the right to be safe. And today that's not the case. And what we are trying to build is a technology platform and operating system that allows every city, every citizen to be safe. And the way you do that is three steps. You have to build devices that capture evidence. So the number one problem in crime is there's no evidence. If you are in San Francisco and you get mugged, you're not going to know what that person looked like. You're not going to have anything actionable. You're going to call 911 and they're going to say, I'm really sorry. This is a horrible event. There's nothing I can do. That's not fair. That's not right. That's not a just society. In a flock world, there is a piece of evidence that is then actionable. Step one, capture that evidence. Mm -hmm. Second step is you have to decode it. You have to do something with that to turn it into actionable evidence. So if you think about the traditional situation outside of San Francisco is, let's say someone breaks into your home. If you have a Ring doorbell, and by the way, Jamie's built a great company, nothing about the world of what mm -hmm. Ring has done. I'm a happy customer. But if all you have is that as evidence, it's not actionable. But if you have a vehicle, then you have something that can be decoded into an actual piece of evidence that a law enforcement can say, great, let's go do something with it. And then the last piece of what we do from an equation perspective is deliver it then. So you actually give it to the right person. So we have software that police departments and 911 centers use. So the ramification of like what we've done is about 700 times a day, someone's having the worst day of their life and we help provide justice. So that translates to about three and a half percent of all crime in America gets solved because of the technology we've built. And we do it in a way, and this is important to me, that reduces the bias that is inherent in kind of our, our unconscious biases from a policing perspective. Isn't it surreal just hearing that number? And I know you have even grander yeah. ambitions. Like I think by the end of the year, like the goal is to get to 10% of crimes right. every day yeah. solved by flock. Isn't it surreal? Like it, it makes me almost proud to be like American in some way. Like I, 100%. and I'm sitting in like your office with dots on maps and license plates of the people that you've taken, like criminals, like bad, yeah. bad people that you've put behind bars. Your office was downstairs when there's 10 people. Like, isn't yeah. it just kind of surreal? Even as you look at yourself in the mirror saying that now, sitting here, like, holy shit. Yeah. It's, I actually have goosebumps as you're talking because those stories never get old. Like we were, we just recently had like our first large deployment in the Seattle area, which has been politically, you know, a tough place for a company like ours to do business and cameras go up for people who are listening. There's a sensitive story. So if you are uh, 
issues with sensitive topics. This is like a tough one. Tune out. Yeah. So cameras go up. It's in a town called Yakima. Uh, it's in Washington. This is like a public story, so I'm mm-hmm. not, not disclosing anything. And there was a report of a little girl that was kidnapped. And within a couple hours, they figure out who it is. It's a known sex offender, child molester, who's got this little girl. It's literally worst nightmare as a parent. They're able to get the girl back, but they're not able to find the guy. He leaves the child somewhere. They then get hot tag alert. And so for those who don't know what that means, it means like we, so we have access to about a quarter of a million cars at any given time that are wanted for something. And so this guy was clearly on the list because Yakima put him in. So the FBI, like, hey, this guy not only is a known child molester, but we believe he kidnapped this, this child and we need to get him. They get a hit at one of their elementary schools that he had come on campus from our cameras. Like he's not going there just to, to park his car. So they arrest the guy. And the chief goes to the press and is like, this is the most impactful tool since DNA. And if like that doesn't get you excited and to your point, proud to be, and for our case, like a flock employee who will never meet that family, will never meet that community. Like we, we, some of us are in Atlanta, some of us are in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Dallas, wherever. That is so fucking cool. Now, granted, the Yakima Police Department did all the hard work. They did the really hard work. We just build technology. And the sad part is that happens 700 times a day. The exciting part is that person is going to pay for what he did, and he should. That's amazing. Let's unpack that story a little bit to understand the way that Flock actually works. Yeah. So the city of Yakima bought Flock cameras that they then had at ingress and egress points around that all specific- city. All through the city. All through the city. Yeah. Including either at the school or leading up to the school or the turns that he had to take yeah. to get to the school. And what Flock was doing was on the back end, taking pictures of, I kind of think of it as like the metadata of the car. Yeah, exactly. Like all of the descriptors on the outside, not just license plate, but like- Everything. Everything, whether the bumper was scratched or whatever. And then- corresponding that to what the police knew that car was. Is that correct? Yeah. So here's the way to think about it, right? So family calls 911 and they're like, oh my gosh, a red Honda SUV just stole our child. So Yakima- They they didn't get the license plate. No, they don't get the license plate. It's like your child just got stolen. Like the fact that they even remembered the color, the make, that's enough. So then Yakima can go in and say, show us all of, to your point, the metadata, any metadata we have, but show us the vehicles that match that in this area. And then they've got a list. They've obviously all the video evidence, but they also then have a list of license plates. They can go pull it up and they're like, oh my gosh, one of these cars is in fact a registered sex offender. Like odds are this is probably our guy. And then they can take that and put it in create what's called a hot list and say, okay, the next time we see this license plate on any flock camera in the whole country, the whole country, notify us. And that notification can go via SMS, email, in the patrol car. So they get the notification in the patrol car that he's near the school and they turn on the blue sirens, race over there to prevent something bad happening again. So it's all kind of interconnected how that works. There's a 911 call, there's capturing the information and then creating that alert system. Why'd you start the company? What's the story? Mm. So going back, the original goal was twofold. I wanted to start a company with Paige and Matt. So getting back to people, like I firmly believe that great people find great markets, build great products. So we knew the three of us wanted to start a company together. That's all we knew. They had worked with me at my prior company. 
they were like ready to do their first co-founder role. And so every night they'd come over to my house because I wasn't working. Uh, I had nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. You're um, just getting off 18. Yeah. yeah. Just like, ready, yeah, what, exactly. <laughs> and we had all these ideas. And the, like, the second thing is like, we just didn't want to build a dopey business. We wanted to build something that like felt really, really important. And out of all the ideas, Flock was the one that just from idea to paying customers was like days. Like it was not a 18 month customer discovery process like you often go through. It was like call a couple neighborhoods. They're like, oh my gosh, we would love to have a product that is infrastructure free, that you manage, that you install, that can capture all of the cars that are coming in and out of our community. And so literally like within a day or two, people were wiring money into my personal bank account and we had to go build this product. We knew nothing about hardware. I'm an electrical engineer, but like I hadn't touched hardware in a decade. Mm-hmm. Matt is a really gifted software developer, but he'd never done any machine learning or computer vision. And so we were like, okay, like we got to go figure this out. And it was still a project. It was not a company, right? We actually called it Project Flock because we were like, oh, we'll figure out a better name later. Mm-hmm. As is often the case. Yes. And everything changed about two months in to the idea I got a phone call from Detective Yimmer, and I'll, I'll never forget this day. It's like very cemented in my head. And he calls me, and I had very little exposure to law enforcement histo- prior, so I was a bit nervous because I didn't understand why a detective was calling me. No, usually not a good thing. No, it's normally not a good thing when a yeah. detective's calling you. It's like, oh, is this Mr. Langley? It's like, it is. Yeah. And he was calling to thank me because the cameras led to an arrest from a home invasion. And without the cameras, he was like, this would have been a cold case. But with the cameras, we've made an arrest. And that's when like, I hung up the phone, called Paige and Matt. And I was like, this is what we need to do. It's going to work. I don't know the go-to-market. I don't know anything. But I know that millions of people have this problem, if not the whole country, that like crime happens and it's not solved. It's like, let's go build a company. And they went all in, as did I. And like, we stopped talking about anything besides Flock. And that was, to your point, that was about you know, five years ago. Incredible. It's wild. That is absolutely incredible. You have said that the belief of flock, which might be general consensus at this point, it might be empirical, is that the only way to stop crime is to solve more crime. Yeah. Can you explain that? Is that right, first of all? Like, yeah, that, that is right. That, that's I, right. That's, I don't want to mischaracterize. Right. No, 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 that's exactly right. So we'll zoom out for a second. So there's two types of crimes. There's violent crime and nonviolent crime. Violent crime uh, has been happening for thousands of years. Uh, you go all the way back to the, the Bible, whether or not you believe it or not, let's call it like a historical reference point to literally the original story in the Bible is violence, mm. right? A brother hurts another brother. That's human nature. Majority of the time, violence is happening to someone you know. Random acts of violence are exceptionally rare. Those are like truly evil people that are going to do that if it's a random act of violence. That's not something that I think we can immediately address. That's a human nature thing. So it's like, let's park that to the side. Nonviolent crime is actually a fairly American problem. There are plenty of countries like Japan, like nonviolent crime really isn't a thing. Because like, you know, it's either culturally unacceptable or it's culturally acknowledged that if you commit this crime, you will get arrested. And so if you look at the empirical data, like the primary research done by- And sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. to qualify that, nonviolent crime is things like petty thefts. I'm gonna steal a car, I'm gonna yep. steal your wallet. It, it, it is crimes traditionally of opportunity. So I'm gonna go steal your car because I believe I can then go pawn it, 
break it down, use it to go rob a bank and get away with it. Or I'm going to go into CVS and steal all the razors in San Francisco. Exactly. And so those crimes only happen because there is an underlying belief that you can get away with it. I'm not going to steal your car because I hate you. That isn't, that's not logical. I'm going to steal your car because I can get away with it and I'm going to make some money. And so that actually, when you look at their primary research, shows that the punitive nature of the criminal justice system, there's no linear correlation between how harsh of punishments we provide and the likelihood of a crime happening. The only correlation is between the clearance rate, so the likelihood you will get arrested, that's it. So if you can drive the clearance rate up, let's call it to rounding up to 100%, nonviolent crime will simply stop. And like that, that, that is a world that I want to exist. When you first started solving crime, the tricky thing is that crime, statistically speaking, in a given city, goes up. Mm -hmm. Detective Yimmer is going to have to say that there was more crime in his neighborhood in the first six months of using Flock. Yeah. Because you're detecting more crime. Yeah. But your point is that is a necessary evil, no pun intended. Like, you have to do that in order to get... What was the word that you just used to like actually solve the crime? Clearance rate. The clearance rate. Like in order to get the clearance rate high, you need to be finding a lot. Of, you crime. need to find a lot of crimes. Yeah. So that's a, you actually bring up a really interesting point, which gets into we are often challenged on does this have an, an a outsized impact on traditionally like uh, high crime areas or in some cases like communities of color. It does in a positive way because we are creating a relationship that today a lot of crime doesn't even get reported because if I live in a community that doesn't trust the police department to actually go do their jobs, I'm not going to even call it in. And so what I think is going to be the uh, first order effect is we'll see crime as a total in go up with clearance rates. But what you see in a place like Cobb County, which is in Georgia or San Marino in California is there's that temporary spike with clearance rates and total crime. But then there's this immediate drop down because there's two things that change. Criminals find out, oh gosh, if I commit a crime, I'm going to get arrested. So I'm, I'm not going to do that. And second, a refresh of the relationship between the community and law enforcement. And it's one of trust and one of respect. And that also changes the dynamic in a community. Because if you're in a community that is traditionally plagued with crime, like that changes things. And like you go to a place like Nashville and one of our best kind of like community customers there she describes this world where it just wasn't safe like to live there, but she can't afford to move. Like it's a privilege we were talking about earlier, like buying, whether it's buying cars or buying a house, you could choose to move from San Francisco to Denver to Austin because you have a high paying job. If you can't afford to leave your community, your only choice is to invest in it. And like, that's what we can do. We can actually help transform these communities. And now it's an exceptionally safe place. And that's pretty cool. Some of the stats are staggering with this company. Like we talked about the 3% today and 10% uh, by the end of the year, ideally, and hopefully a lot more. Law enforcement has reported crimes decrease 70% or more when working yeah. with Flock in their neighborhood. Why is this company controversial? I actually mean that sincerely. Is the company controversial or are people saying something underneath that? Is it more of an attack or an interrogation on the company and the way that you capture the data and all that? Or is it more generally a sentiment around what we want 
safety, protection. And I mean that genuinely, sincerely, because I think you have an interesting perspective. So there are some people who just generally believe the police shouldn't exist. Can't argue with them. That's their belief. That's their opinion. We're fortunate to live in a country like America where they're allowed to have that opinion. They will never like this company because we enable law enforcement to do their job more objectively and better. Let's call that some fraction of a percentage of America. The reality, though, is those people also tend to be pretty loud. So if you think about a a city council meeting, you and I probably aren't going to show up. We are normal citizens who we voted, hopefully, and we just trust that the people we voted in are going to make good decisions. So we're not going to go deep on engagement. We're controversial for that because we actually support law enforcement. I think justice is a good thing. I think we exist in a society that has rules. Those rules need to be followed. Sometimes those rules are old and stale, so we should elect people to go change them. But generally speaking, we fortunately live in a world or in a country that has rules. So we're controversial for that because we believe that laws should be followed, which I realize is kind of funny to say it's controversial, but for some people, they don't want laws to exist. The second kind of bigger bucket, though, of controversy is due to misinformation. There was a recent city who voted not to work with Flock because of two reasons, facial recognition and selling data. Two things which we do not do. Facial recognition, meaning the cameras are taking pictures of the people's faces. And doing something with that. Similar to what happens when I go over fast track in the Bay Area. Exactly. Okay. So they were like, hey, we don't want... Which we do not do. Which we do not do facial recognition. Like literally from a physics perspective, it would be almost impossible. We are typically 100 feet off the road, 30 feet in the air, focused on a car. Like you would have to be standing in the middle of the street and our camera doesn't have a high enough resolution to even do it. They were like, we don't want any facial recognition. And they're like, and we don't want a company that's gonna sell all of our data. And if you look at our T's and C's, we don't own the data, our customers do. We have no legal right to do anything with the data. And so it's like, city council, I don't know who told you this information, it's actually all factually wrong. Mm -hmm. So when we have an opportunity to engage the community, which we're big proponents of, I think it's Oklahoma City, as one of our newer customers. And we did like six community engagement events with the police department before they went to council because we wanted to get the actual information out ourselves. And when you do that, everyone's like, same question that you have. So, wait, why is this? Why would we not want this? You're telling, we're telling us it's going to reduce the bias because we're focused on cars, not people. It's a car. The car is stolen. Not the person inside of it. We know who's driving it. We're going to find out soon. This car was stolen. This car is wanted. That's a change in lexicon and kind of like way it works. So I don't think it's controversial once people know the truth. But as we all know in today's world, not everyone actually wants to go find the truth themselves. They're happy just to read a headline and believe what they already believed before they even, you know, thought about us. I'm very curious. What are some like edge cases? Because where I think this gets the most interesting are your mission is pure. Like I think it is. Like you want to solve more crime. I imagine there's just gray areas that then actually lead to unconscious bias if you make one decision yeah. versus the other. Does it question like, yeah. like do do those does that exist? Yeah, well let me talk about like a harder one, which is let's pick a city that doesn't exist to make it a little bit easier. Yeah. Let's pick like Johnstown, California. Mm-hmm. I hope it's not a real town. Oh, I yeah. don't think they're a customer yeah. if it is a real town. And let's say they only have the budget because it's a fiscally run, well-run city to get 10 cameras, but they need like a hundred to cover the whole city. Where do you put the 10 cameras? Do you put it in areas that are high crime, which also might be areas of, that are predominantly people of color? Is that over-policing an area that already has crime? Or is it helping them? 
Or do you spread it out evenly, which is maybe the most democratic approach, but is also the lowest effectiveness given the budget constraints? There's no right answer there. Or do you like stack rank what you think is worse crime than others? Do you put it next to the CVS rather than the elementary school? Right. Or do you put it at the hospital so that when someone's dropping off someone who just got shot, like you're capturing more evidence for violent crime? Those are interesting questions where we have an opinion as a company, which we think the right approach is actually to decrease effectiveness and spread it out evenly. Because at the end of the day, they're still going to work. They're still going to be good. It's the cleanest answer. It's the least effective, but it is at least the cleanest answer. And then they can always hopefully buy more cameras. That's a tricky one, right? Because if I'm a, if I'm a chief of police, my job is to create a safe city. And if I know there's more crime over here, let me go solve that crime. But that doesn't always pass the like, the New York Times cover, the city council wants equal distribution. So I think that's, a, I think that's like a interesting edge case. Let's say the second edge case is there are laws in this country that not everyone agrees with. Now think about immigration. You probably have a very strong point of view on immigration law. I do. You do. Whether you live in Texas, California, or Georgia probably also reflects your views on that. We as a company find ourselves in a situation where we don't view it as our job to decide the laws. So if in California, as an example, it is illegal to use our product on immigration. So we don't let our customers use our product for immigration. It's literally illegal. It's in the state bylaws. In Texas, they don't support illegal immigration. And so do our customers use the product for illegal immigration? I'm sure they do. But it's like, even though politically I might strongly disagree with it, right. but that's the law. And totally. like in Texas, this is accepted law. That's a tricky one. No, it's, those are both really good. That's exactly what I was thinking. Like, this is just so much gray area. The technology foundationally in its initial form was built to capture data specifically around cars, correct? Like the right. cameras are looking at cars, yeah. right? Is there data that shows you leading indicators of if there is a stolen car, as an example, first of all, if someone's a criminal of something, are they more likely to be a criminal of something else? Question number one. And then question number two, like how often do you find a stolen car that then also turns out like this guy or gal is like way worse than the stolen car? I'm going to exaggerate 99% of the time. It's never about the stolen car. It's about what's inside and who's inside. So give you like a real life example. Stolen car gets picked up. I'm going to bet there's at least one firearm and narcotics in the car. Like without a doubt. Like no one steals a car for fun. Clearly there's the like 16 year olds who are like, oh, this is going to be a, a fun Saturday. It's exceptionally rare. Most of the time I'm stealing a car to go commit a more serious crime. Or I'm stealing a car because I'm on the run from something else I've done. So yeah, you're spot on. Your spidey sense is strong that the reason why law enforcement is so actively pursuing the stolen car isn't for that offense, which is actually quite minor in the judicial system. It is for what you probably did or were about to go do. Mm -hmm. So yeah. That makes sense. All right, I have another thought on all this stuff. There's a reason I wanted to talk to you. Like I was a soul on this company. Like I get it. The reason that I was, that I so deeply believe in this is because I think in the next 10 to 20 years, and COVID has accelerated what was already an existing trend in my mind, is that cities, local municipalities, states, and I think you could even extrapolate that to countries, are going to have to compete for their people. So like you see that right now in San Francisco, 
right? Like you can see it. There's a reason people are leaving. There's yeah. a bunch of reasons. Yeah. One of them, in my opinion, like living in San Francisco, proud to be a Bay Area raised kid, is that there's a lot of crime. I think there's a lot of ways that cities can compete for their citizens. Yeah. So if you look at what Miami is doing, that's one option. Like Bitcoin friendly, low taxes. You know, Atlanta is probably similar. Austin is similar, except they have high real estate taxes, right? Yeah. So there's all these things that you can do. There's weather. Like yep. you can control that, but you can't, right? But there's things, yeah. there's just features and bugs of cities. And I'll tell you, I was just in Chicago over the weekend. I lived in Chicago for a year. I have a bunch of friends that live in Chicago. I think the nicest area of Chicago is probably River North. It's probably yeah. the most expensive area too. And all my friends, eight of them, are all planning on leaving Chicago. One of them, the night that I got there, lives in Lincoln Park, very nice area. Someone got yeah. shot right outside his. Oh, that's horrible. Horrible, okay? Yeah. And so they're leaving because that value prop does not resonate with them. That is too foundational yep. for what they believe they need to enjoy a quality of life that meets their bar. Mm -hmm. They're going to leave. So like, I started reading into this, especially in the Chicago use case. In 2021, 900 police left the force in Chicago and 51 joined. Yeah. This isn't like an accident. No, like, not at all. It's like super, super obvious. Do you believe that like one way that flock can just really memorialize a value prop of a city or town is just really high quality safety. Don't you yeah. almost think that's the bedrock of a strong community? Yeah, I mean, you think about why people live places, you hit a few of them. It needs to be a pretty place, right? Like it needs to have good weather and, and it has to be attractive, right? The second is it needs to be socially engaging, right? And there needs to be a strong community in terms of whether well, it's nightlife or family life or activities. And the third is like, it needs to be safe. Like those are Marlowe's hierarchy, right? Like it has to be safe. And the trend you're describing in Chicago applies across the country. So year over year, resignations in law enforcement are up 50%. 50%? Year over year, retirement's up 20%. People are retiring earlier. Hiring, so like net new law enforcement officers, down 5%. So 5% less people joined, 50% more retired, 18% more left. That's not a good trend. If you look at the kind of, and I think you're getting to this, you, you look at the macro bet, right? So like, why did our investors bet on Flock? Clearly, we're having a lot of success, revenue growth. It's an underlying belief that that trend is not going to fundamentally change. And the only way to make a workforce more effective is technology. So like, look, Chicago's never going to have more officers. It's a slow decline. I hope it stabilizes. I hope things like Flock actually reinvigorate a group to say, hey, we can actually go do our job effectively. And I think to your second point, what we see is really interesting is we see that migration happening. And we see at the local level, I can show you hundreds of examples where when people are listing their houses on Zillow and Redfin and, and Realtor.com or whatever, they're like, oh yeah, and, and we have a Flock camera in our neighborhood. So cool. Which is like a wild feeling. And then you see it in cities. Like I see it in uh, Lakeland, Tennessee. The commissioners there, they run on a campaign that they brought Flock to the city and they will continue to invest in technology like Flock. And I think that's right. As a citizen, I want to look for that, right? Are my elected officials actually investing in things that matter to me? 
94% of New York City's budget goes towards labor and people. 94%. Yeah, that's pretty wild. 94%. Think about that. Yeah. Like we're not even giving what is a very noble profession, no pun intended, a fighting chance here. Yeah. And then they're leaving because, of course, like they can't <laughs> do their job effectively. Yeah. They cannot do their job effectively. And somehow, somewhere along the way, we lost the script because it wasn't that long ago when we were younger when like officers were revered. That was a very noble, good profession. That is not the case in this current climate. And I think it's crazy. Yeah. I think it's changing now. I think the the tides are evolving. I would not say we're there, but... Now, Gravis, there's a bias effect because I'm talking to current customers and prospects. But when I engage with city council, with mayors and city managers, there's a recognition that this idea of defunding the police is entirely irrational. I think most nuanced thinkers recognize that we have problems we have to solve. We need to figure out why police are being tasked with both solving a home invasion and dealing with someone who has a mental health issue. Those are like two very different tasks. And if you send the same 24 year old who's got a gun and a taser and a baton, like those are the tools he's been given. You shouldn't expect necessarily a great outcome. And so I'm personally a huge believer that it's actually not about a divestiture. It's about an investment into how the city handles its citizens and sometimes force Law enforcement is the right solution, but a lot of times you have to separate the problems we have and have solutions for each of them. Like if you send a cop to a fire, it's not going to do anything. So we have a fire department. That makes a lot of sense. I don't know why we haven't done that same thought process, like at a more granular level. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. Okay. Now here we are like three and a half billion dollar company later, mom's working for you and 500 people and you have the who's who on the cap table. And I don't want to reconstruct this perfect narrative of how perfect it is. Even though you look at your resume and you're like, hit it as the fifth employee, like all these things, right? So I talked to some of your board. Your seed in series A was like the mission still. Like it was still like people getting behind you because they were like, I believe in you. I believe in the team. I believe in the idea. I believe in what you want to do. So like, Pretty painless-ish. Slideware, yeah. Like, there wasn't much built yet, Yeah. right? I think we had a couple hundred K in ARR. And like 10 customers. A. Yeah, it was tiny. At the Series A. Then, as I understand it, you get to Series B, and you haven't flipped over many more cards since the Series A yeah. as a business, because it's hard. You're doing hardware. Yeah. So it's like, you kind of had the triple whammy of you're doing hardware and software. Like, both of those are pretty hard. Yeah. You're in Atlanta which is not the Bay Area, which is most, where most of these investors <laughs> at are. At the time, yeah, at the time. At the time, yeah. yep. Pre-COVID. And you're selling to police departments? Yeah. And homeowners associations? Yeah, two very well-established venture-backed industries. <laughs> <laughs> right? So people look at this and they're like, wait a second, this is a good idea. Now you need to do something. Like You need to yeah. show us that the, there's a business here. When you went into the B, did you feel... Like it was early. What happened during yeah. that time? Like, did you know going into these pitches, like, shit, so, so we're not ready. Here's what we knew. We knew the things you just described, right? So 80% of the venture market wasn't even going to take a meeting. Like too many strikes, right? Too many oddities. Nothing mattered, right? It's just like, look, not going to do it. So now we're down to two out of 10 people will even take a meeting. 
I think in hindsight, I can see some of it. I still like struggle to fully understand why we struggled so much because I saw what I thought was traction. It's kind of funny in today's, I guess not today anymore, because we're talking in May and the market is where the market is. But like we had gone from a couple hundred thousand in ARR to Series A to 7 million in 18 months in ARR. I was thinking like, I think I'm doing a pretty good job, guys. We went from a million to 7 million in ARR in 12 months. We're early, but we're figuring out this law enforcement thing. I'm pretty sure we've got really good data. But to be clear, my investors in Series A were like, you are way too early. You don't have the traction. You need multiple quarters. If you're trying to raise on law enforcement, it's not going to happen. And I was like, but guys, it's real. Like I'm on the plane. I- I'm literally flying every single to every single meeting. I'm booking these deals. It's a real thing. I didn't believe them, right? Like it was a classic case for like founder denialism where I was like, no, this is awesome. So we went out to raise the Series B and could not get a term sheet. I don't think I've shared this before. We had three months of runway. It's like we're actually on the brink of dying. And Gary Tan, who led our seed, and Alda, Dennis, were like, we'll give you a term sheet. I think it was the first Series B they've ever done. Ever done. And I don't know if they've done any more since. But I think in hindsight, they, they made a good investment. But like I said, I still to this day, like I, I don't... I mean, I get it, right? There was a lot of strikes against us. But what I don't understand is, I guess, like what Gary saw that no one else saw. And maybe he just still believed that I would figure it out. I was convinced we were going to go out of business. Three months of runway. No one wanted to invest. None of our existing investors were like, oh, we're ready to double down. Oh, we'll cover the bridge. And Did Gary- that piss you off? Uh, or did it scare the shit out of you? How many people were at the company? Uh, probably like 50. So like that would have been pretty painful. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No one knew we had such little runway besides me, right? Like we didn't have like a finance team or we had one person, I think she was an FP&A analyst. I don't know if it pissed me off. It definitely was frustrating. And were you keeping that in? Were you holding that in? At work? Yeah. At, at home? No. Like my wife always knows when I'm fundraising because I generally don't sleep. I'm not very fun to be with. It's not a very enjoyable experience, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I still... I would love to go back to some of those firms who passed because a lot of them, six months later, were dying to get into the Series C. And to me, the business just hadn't fundamentally changed. But clearly it had, right? Like we had two more quarters of upward growth. We had more law enforcement revenue. Like things were working better. But it's just interesting. Like I don't understand necessarily the mentality of a VC where it's like, man, six months isn't that much time, Mm -hmm. but I guess it is. And when you're like three months of runway, which is scary little, like that's not much. Are you thinking I'm going to let my employees down? I'm going to let my early investors down. Am I going to let my, the communities that we're serving already down? Who do you get the most anxious? My ego is going to be completely wrecked because I was Uh. the golden boy coming into this. Like where does the pain come from the most? Where do you experience it the most? Yeah. I would say the employees. So I don't know if you've ever fired anyone before. Uh, it sucks. It's horrible, particularly when it's not performance. Performance related, that's a little bit different. When it's because you've failed, 
Like you have failed to build the company in a sustainable way to manage burn compared to growth to properly capitalize the business. There's only one person whose job is to do that. It's the CEO. So the, the overarching fear was like, I've hired all these people that I know that are friends, were friends in college that I knew that I convinced to quit their stable job to come join this thing. And it's like, shit, they're all going to be out of a job. It's the worst feeling in the world. The Meritech guys who did the Series C said that they talked to the Atherton police chief. Yeah. Him specifically, but I think you could probably just generalize to all police chiefs, aren't very excited about new technologies coming into their world. And what the chief said was that this is the most no-brainer piece of technology that he's ever seen in law enforcement. And immediately they were like, oh, shit, like this is, this thing's real. And they invested. I asked them, what was the lowest point that you saw Garrett in? What they said was there was a winter storm in the <laughs> south. Yeah. You know where I'm going with this? Yeah, I think so. And uh, it was in Austin and the broad area. By the way, I was in Austin for that. Yeah, you know what I'm talking I about. I was living there. Yeah. It was horrific. In every which way. And the cameras are designed for like sub 20 degree weather. Like they're designed for pretty extreme weather. Anyway, some of them started going out, right? And you lost like a couple K of AR, like a couple thousand dollars of AR, like really nothing. And the way that the story was relayed to me was that it frustrated you so deeply And what I was curious about was like, was it the revenue? What frustrated you so deeply? Like they've, that you have, no one's ever seen you so aggravated about something that to others felt pretty innocuous. Yeah. So we have a company value called protect the whole community. So we view it as a company as our responsible to protect community. And it's a responsibility. It's a burden. It is not an, I don't even view it as an honor. It is a responsibility that we have to create safer communities. And I was talking to one of our firmware engineers. Her name's Banu, which is great. I can't remember exactly where she lives, somewhere in America. And we do like just, ran, we got randomly assigned to spend 30 minutes together just to like catch up. Mm-hmm. So I'd never met her. And she was describing to me how all of our engineers go on support at some point in the quarter or month and she was on support and someone had emailed in, the camera was down and a crime occurred and we had no evidence. And it like, clicked for her of like, holy smokes, when we have downtime, crime happens and we can't help. Mm. It's not acceptable. And so my frustration rooted from this idea that like our job is so simple have a product that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year, and customers love us. It's a little bit tricky working that, have that kind of uptime, but like the promise is so simple to our customers and we failed so miserably combined with the fact that that was our first ever customer churn ever. I believe we should have zero churn. If we do our job every day, do our job really, really well, we will never have churn. And we failed that day and it was very painful. (laughs) We got to go to dinner soon. And I don't want to stop. Honestly, it kind of sucks. I got to ask you about the market today. I want this podcast in 10 years to still be like lessons that will 
blast yeah. the time spectrum, whatever the expression is. It is, what are we? What's the May 11th. May 11th. It's May 11th. And Shopify is down 80%, 85% year to date. Yeah. Peloton's down 94% from peak. 94% from peak. Yeah. Coinbase went down 30% t- today and it got hammered yesterday. Yeah, I think it's down 50% year to date or something. Yeah. yeah. On and on and on. Yeah. This continues. So in our portfolio, which I imagine is in many venture portfolios, is like runway matters. Like you can't yeah. have yeah. three months of runway right now. You can't have 12 months of runway. You can't. You can barely, why do you say that? Oh, I, you I think, think you think it's going to go longer. You think it's going to take a long time before it's going to be. I, I just think the last two years need to be deleted from everyone's head. And then it's actually not as bad as people are making it out to be. I, I clearly it's crazy. But if you look at a company like Peloton and like exceptional brand, exceptional product, I love that product. Like the last two years were a disaster for them. And they got way overstretched, way overinvested. Mm-hmm. And now they're burning cash. They've destroyed their gross margins. And like this, it's not a good business right now. God, I hope they turn it around because I love that product. And like such a great story. And to be fair, like John and the CTO are both George Tech grads, double E's as well. So like I'm also rooting from them from an alumni perspective. Mm-hmm. But I was talking to another CEO who's, who's only two years into business. So he's only been an entrepreneur during this like crazy market. And he was like frustrated that he didn't think he could raise his next round as like a 5X markup. And I'm like, dude, you need to be excited that you have a business. Mm-hmm. Like you, it, it is so cool that we get to start companies. Like what an insane idea that we get to go to a whiteboard and say, I want to eliminate crime. Hey, Mr. VC, Miss VC, give me a couple million dollars. And then you do it. And then we get to go hire people that we like to spend time with to like solve fun problems and we get paid to do it. I think people just need to like wake up and be like, this is, there are so many jobs that suck that you have to do because you need to live paycheck to paycheck because you need to put food on the table for your family. And we literally get to build stuff from nothing. So like, yeah, look, I don't want a down round. I don't want a flat round. I, I want to be conscious of my own dilution and ownership. But like that's second and third order problems compared to I get to do something that I love to do. I get paid pretty damn well to do it. And I think everyone it just needs to wake up and recognize where we are. Because even three years ago, four years ago, like we did our Series B, struggled to do it. We're at $7 million ARR. I think it was a $100 million post. And I was freaking ecstatic. We were going to live. We were going to have a company. We could do this thing. And that still felt like a really good price. I was like, oh, I built a $100 million company. And for those listening, $7 million IRR in the last two years was like, you a could bit, raise it over a billion. Yeah. And to be clear, we had 7x the company year before and we're pacing to 3 to 4x the you company. You could raise it a billion dollars. Yeah. yeah or so you like wake up. Or more. And to be clear, like I, I was telling this other CEO, I was like, dude, you're either going to have an exceptionally outsized return. And so whether you have 10% or 12% or 15% of the company, it's like, isn't going to matter. What's going to matter is like whether you actually build a real company that generates free cash flow. And like, you should be conscious of dilution, but also you should be super conscious of like, are you having fun? Do you have good investors on your cap table that mm-hmm. you enjoy spending time with? Like, I feel super privileged that I don't have a single person on my cap table that I don't genuinely like spending time with. Mm-hmm. Same on the employee side. So I, I don't know. I think my perspective is that it's very tough out there. I feel for all the people underwater on their RSUs and all that kind of stuff. But it's like, I don't think we ever get back to the craziness of 
100x ARR rounds, or in that case, 200x ARR rounds. Yeah, no kidding. And the 10 to 20x is pretty good. It's where we were five years ago, four years ago. I don't know. I think it's that's where we are calibrating on. Well, I'm glad I asked. Um, yeah, that's Sorry. obvious. No, I feel uh, very strongly. About I, no it. kidding. I yeah. I, I just I think, I think that conversation is to be continued over yeah. some wine or something. That yes. was a, that was Sorry. a good one. No, yeah, that was a good one. Okay, I've, I I want to ask more questions. I wrap all these things the same way. Okay. The first, are you hiring? Very aggressively. What are you hiring? For? Let's just say you're hiring for everything: hardware, software, sales. hardware, software, computer vision, account management, marketing, technicians. If there's any technicians listening, that's a big area of growth for us, like anything under the sun. Are there any key roles that like immediately you're like, oh, I need to hire this job. If someone's listening. Everything. Everything. Like, it, 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 but this way, if you have a passion for building a safer world, just come apply. We will find you a job. Last question. What does grit mean to you? Changing the world. Gary Langley. Thank you. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com. 